are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations and Radio Maria. We're so uh, grateful that you're with us today to join us on this uh, very special uh, day in many respects. Um, this is actually going to be a second conversation that uh, Francis Harry, my co-host, and I will be having about my recent trip to Spain. Uh, and Francis, I can say, I think this week my feet are a little bit more on the ground, <laughs> uh, still feeling the blessings of the graces. And, and in many ways, I think uh, those graces are maturing into uh, some thoughts and understanding about the, the fullness of um, what I received in that time that I was able to spend in Spain. Yeah, I, our audience probably didn't see you levitating here, but yeah, uh, I yeah. can vouch for it. <laughs> At least levitating in spirit. Yeah, All right, confession will be immediately after the program, Francis. Oh, I'm so glad, so glad you're going to come. You're here tonight, and we're together to continue the the talk um, because I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more. Well, and I also want to say this is a special day. Uh, depending on when and where you may be listening to this program, we happen to be in the studio. Uh, on uh, Veterans Day. In the United States. In the United States. And we want to make sure to um, take some time in our conversation today uh, both to acknowledge and to pray for our veterans who face so many challenges. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, And also what I think is a responsibility on the part of us who find ourselves in this deeper, intimate relationship with the Lord to lift up uh, the veteran community across this country uh, because there really are so many needs and so many uh, trials and struggles that they're dealing with. So we'll talk about that. Um, but let us begin as we do each week by turning ourselves over, turning our listeners over, and, and turning this message over to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by entering into prayer. Well, I chose this prayer because it's um, the prayer to the saints of Carmel. And the feast day for all the saints of Carmel is November the 14th. That's coming up on Thursday. And the feast of all the souls of Carmel is November 15th. So in honor of them, I want to um, start with this prayer. And also, of course, as Mark said, to keep our veterans in prayer. And also... Um, all the people in the Philippines that experienced uh, this uh, terrible situation of the weather, uh, a lot of lives. Uh, so please, everybody, press in on prayer. Prayer changes things. Prayer uh, can't help but change things. So let's uh, remember that. So let's get let recollected uh, in your spirit. Kind of put, put the things of the day aside and just go into your interior, to your soul, the tabernacle of your heart. And let us begin this prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy men and women of Carmel, you found in the Carmelite family a school of prayer, a community ready to serve others, and sure companions for your pilgrimage through life. From your place at the summit of Mount Carmel, Jesus Christ, Help us to walk steadily in his footsteps, that our prayers and good works may further the cause of his church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. Um, I'm perfectly comfortable if you would like to use a format similar to the one we did last week and sort of let you uh, lead with your questions, and I can just sort of reflect on um, you know, my experiences in the context of what you think our listeners might be interested in. Again, I had the great privilege of spending about 11 days in Spain, saw many 
of the uh, locations that represent uh, the founding and the growth of the, the discussed Carmelite order, uh, most especially Avila, uh, Segovia, John's birthplace, the place where both John and Teresa are entombed. And I'd like to also mention that you can email us at capital C, Carmelite dot conversation. So Carmelite dot conversations with a capital C for Carmelite at yahoo.com. And we also have a Facebook page, Carmelite Conversations. We'd love to have you visit there. Many of you have and made comments, suggestions, and shared your experiences, and we really appreciate that. So, Mark, um, I know we'll we'll talk about some of the places, but, uh, you know, I'm always interested in what's, what's going on in your mind and your Carmelite heart. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, um, what did you read while you were on? Because I know that they gave you some material about the background and the history of Teresa and John to help prepare you mm-hmm. so that when you're at these places, you're not having to learn about them, but, but you can really, uh, you know, get engaged into the spirit of the place. Uh, what, what was it that helped you in your prayer and in your... Uh, uh, reading uh, as you were actually on the pilgrimage? Well, the major um, assignments, if you will, that Father Daniel Chowning, who led the pilgrimage, uh, suggested that we um, read were sections from Teresa's life and then sections from John's um, major writings. There were specific sections from his major writings that talked about um areas of his individual spiritual development that we would uh, be witnessing in places like we mentioned last week, Segovia, where he spent so much time in prayer, um, uh, Durello, where the first foundation for the friars was a very remote location. I know I mentioned yes. this last week. Right. And so it gave you some context of John's experience. But largely in, in uh, Teresa's writings, uh, we drew from her life. And in the conferences that Father Chowning shared with us, a couple of uh, conferences throughout the 11 days, he went back and did a little bit of uh, the history of her family and what led to some of her own, uh, you know, unique um, uh, abilities and characteristics, um, her uh, devotion and appreciation uh, for both the Jewish faith uh, and and her, uh, you know, obviously deep embrace of the Catholic faith and all of uh, of what that meant for her. So reading from her life gave us context for who the person was. Um, reading about her experiences in the uh, Carmel of Incarnation, in the founding of St. Joseph, in the founding of, uh, for example, Toledo, um, gave us a really good perspective on what Teresa went through. And one of the things you asked me last week, and it stays with me, um, you know, what was I sort of uh, struck by? Uh, one was the distances of these various locations spread throughout uh, the central and, and sort of northeast part of Spain, um, but also the difficulty in traveling to them. I mean, we right. rode in a very luxury, um, you know, bus and, and uh, the comfort of air conditioning and all the rest of it, whereas she and John would have traveled by horseback, by wooden wheel wagon in much uh, more difficult circumstances. Of course, there would have been threats along the way, um, um, you know, just from um, the, the elements and so forth that they would have had to uh, adapt to. But it really struck me, reading from her life, uh, not only the uh, political challenges that she dealt with, the the uh, economic issues that she had to deal with, the various personalities and the, you know, sort of uh, difficult characters that she came in touch with, but just the practical 
a logistical challenge of establishing this many foundations. And you, you checked me up on my number, and I think you're right. It's closer to 17, actually, that she founded. Um, and it's just remarkable to me. You know, I did say last week how the city of Avila has so embraced this historical figure um, and this personality. And in um, Spain in general, I think that's probably true. And with good reason. I mean, Teresa was a remarkable woman in any context. Had she been a political figure, a military figure, or uh, in any other major field of endeavor, uh, aside from the church, she would have been a dominant figure. But, uh, uh, of course, for us as followers of the reform that she instituted, uh, she is a remarkable figure and a remarkably accomplished woman for her time or for any time. Uh, that continues to stay with me. So I know you did a lot of that reading before actually entering the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Were, were there any things outside of those things that you've already mentioned that you were reading while you're actually going from place to place, or were you kind of revisiting um, what was pointed out before to just get deeper? Or? Yeah, I was mostly revisiting those texts. The other one, and I may have mentioned this in our conversation last week, ICS has a wonderful publication um, on John. I'm going to forget the title. But in the Night, something about yeah, the night. Silence in the, the Night. Love in the Night or Silence in the Night. Something uh, Speaks in the Night. Yeah. It's got yeah. night in the title. Silence Speaks in the Night. Yeah, I go to icspublications.org. You'll find yeah. it. It's a beautiful uh, uh, collection of pictures. And, of course, we saw many of those places in our travels. So I did have that with me all the time. Uh, it was just interesting to flip through and see the the destinations that we were headed to. And also there's great history in that book. I mean, it's yes, very well it's written. Awesome. Yeah, it has a, a great deal of detail. Uh, so I did keep that with me, and I did read that um, for each of the destinations that we were going to. The one other uh, text that I mentioned, of course, I haven't really broken the cover on it yet. Um, while we were on the plaza one day in um, Avila, just outside the walls, um, with Father Chowning, we happened upon this um, this uh, uh, friar, older friar. Uh, Father Maximilio was his name, and he had been actually one of Father Dan Chowning's um, instructors when Father Daniel was in school in Spain. And um, he spoke uh, fluent English, so we engaged in conversation. But uh, Father uh, Daniel had mentioned that this, to him, this individual represented the person who had taught him the most about St. John of the Cross. When we were in Segovia uh, a few days later, I noticed a brief text written by Father Maximilio on John's um, method in prayer and and what John and talks about. And you're going to translate that for and all I'm of us, gonna right? And I'm going to translate it because <laughs> you've given away the, the uh, inside joke here. The text is actually in Spanish, and Father Chowning said that they are looking to translate it. But I went ahead and bought the copy in Spanish, and I said... This will be my motivation to begin to, uh, you know, struggle with the language. Well, so. I'm going to ask our li- listening audience to please pray for the gift of tongues of translating, interpreting <laughs> tongues for, for Mark so that he can translate that book so we can get it faster. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love I- to hear uh, what that says. I, and I don't know that much Spanish. I can only recognize a few words because of my Latin background. But um, how wonderful that would be to read that. Yeah. Father Channing said this is one of the, the better books that he's read on uh, sort of understanding John's prayer. And, of course, many people struggle with that if you're not familiar with John of the Cross or the various stages of the development of 
um, the, the intimacy that we enter with the Lord, it can be challenging on, on first uh, pass. And so this, this text, I'm told, is very good in helping to sort of unpack that. Right. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. And you spoke about prayer. Um, and that's a Im- very important part of a pilgrimage is, is having personal times of prayer, group prayer. Of course, we know you're having liturgical prayer, morning, evening prayer, um, mass. Uh, how was how your prayer uh, affected through this pilgrimage? Well, you know, it's interesting. We were we were very busy, and so you really did have to fight a little bit to find those moments of silence. There was so much to see. We went to so many destinations. We added destinations. We didn't know that we would actually, originally when we arrived, we didn't know for sure if we would get to Fonteverdos, which was the birthplace of John, uh, a rather desolate town, by the way, mm-hmm. somewhat smaller, uh, sort of a West Texas tumbleweed town, uh, really not much to speak of in the town itself other than the church, which was a magnificent structure, old. It was, in fact, the very church John was baptized in. The font that he was baptized in is, is there in the church. Mm. I may have mentioned that last week, but, um, and I, uh, I and Father Channing, I have to confess this even on, uh, on, uh, the radio, we broke into the back room of the archives in one of the side chapels. There was a door that was slightly ajar. And I, <laughs> Opportunity. I, yeah, I wandered back there and it, it ended up being the archive room. And uh, there were documents back there, uh, you know, dated back in the uh, uh, 1700s, 1800s. Mm. It was some remarkable stuff. I think an angel went before you and, and helped plan <laughs> yeah. this Open, open <laughs> the door. Of course, it was all in Spanish. So I wandered back out into the to the larger part of the church. And I mentioned to Father Chowning that it was there and the door was open while he immediately <laughs> ducked in behind me. So, And, of course, our listeners know you're very attracted to books. So yeah. you could just smell it <laughs> wherever yeah. books are. You can find it. I, I wish I could have read what was there. But, <laughs> I know. Uh, but it was an amazing thing i'll tell you that was uh one of the more impacting uh moments for me is to stand in this church where uh we know that john was baptized and i don't know why but for some reason even more so than the cathedral in avila where i knew that Teresa had attended mass mm-hmm. as a young girl being in that church that john had been baptized and as a young boy would have attended services uh for me it was just a remarkable uh experience and um, looking out at John's uh, birthplace in any direction, you literally can see for miles. It's just open territory, mm. uh, very broad, uh, you know, open territory meadows and so forth. Uh, very much, as I say, like West Texas. Um, I wasn't all that taken by the town that he grew up in, although, as I say, the church was quite spectacular. Uh, but it was just fascinating to be there. Uh, so those texts were important. They helped prepare uh, the moments of prayer were the stolen moments. I would try to get into the chapel early in the morning in the uh, in the uh, Carmel that we were staying in in Avila. In Toledo, that was a little easier that we were literally um, right there uh, uh, connected to the church. So it, it was uh, a little bit easier to get into the chapel early in the morning. We always prayed to the office together in the morning as a community. A few times we did not pray it at night, but more often than not, we would pray together at night. Um, but you had to... Um, as I say, really steal those moments, and you would notice the members of the of the uh, pilgrimage when we would enter a church. Um, we would each sort of find our way to that quiet little spot. These are large churches, obviously. Um, so we'd find our way to that quiet little spot, and everybody I know would just spend a few minutes. And, of course, I took the opportunity, as I shared, uh, to, to take out the book uh, that... Um, 
reflected, had, had copies of all of the members of our community and my own family as well. And I always took those out in every place I went and would, would lift them up in prayer. So, And let's speak about those churches. Um, what, what churches do you remember the most and what do you remember about them? The most beautiful church was actually the cathedral in Toledo. And the reason for it was the artwork. And I know that shouldn't perhaps be the most significant thing that we think about. But for me, uh, if, you, if you're just talking about majesty and beauty and, and um, so much, uh, um, you know, majestic uh, artwork that was uh, put into the construction of that cathedral and the history and so on and so forth, and various artists, uh, Velasquez, for example, a, a famous Spanish uh, artist who played such a significant role, his work played such a significant role uh, in that cathedral. I think the, the cathedral in Toledo was the most uh, majestic. The church that probably struck me the most, however, was in Alba de Tomas. There was a um, the church where uh, uh, Therese is interred, her, her body. Uh, Teresa, I'm sorry. Teresa is interred. And, and there's a little museum there which has her heart. And we can talk about that in a minute. But literally just across the square... Um, was a church dedicated to John of the Cross. And I think why I was so taken by it was it was so simple. It was all wood interior. The one about John of the Cross? Yes, yes. The one about John of the Cross. It was not ornate. It was not majestic in any way. The artwork was fairly simple. The altar, though very uh, tall and impressive, was all wood. It was much more simple. This woman on the uh, pilgrimage and myself had begun to talk about how we were just becoming a little bit overwhelmed with all of the majestic altars and the and the gold and the you know the uh, just remarkable uh, uh, artwork and so forth that you find in all of these major churches and this particular church I think struck me because because of its simplicity and I remember thinking to myself I think this is how John would have wanted it mm-hmm. and that was in the city of Alba de Tomas and in that very city of course is where um, uh, Teresa's entombed. Yes, talk about that since we're on there. We did get to attend Mass there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was, I think, the day before her feast day. Uh, her tomb, unlike John's, we couldn't get to it. It actually sits above the altar, just behind the altar. It's a remarkable, um, um, you know, uh, I, I, I guess piece of art that, that she resides in. Um, but it is something that you cannot, the, the pilgrims cannot get up to it. Only the, uh, uh, the sisters and the friars in, in, in the area are, are given access to that. You are given access, however, to the museum. And in that museum, and I know I've shown you the picture, is the very cell, literally the very cell where she passed away. Uh-huh. And they have a, a, an image of her uh, lying prone in the bed. Of course, um, the rest of the room is authentic. It is what was there what when does it she look died. Like? Okay. It's very small, very simple. There's a desk, there's a bed, there's a picture of Christ Brick uh, floor. over her head, a tile floor, uh, which may, uh, may I assume updated. that way of, that would have been updated, but maybe not. Um, of course, uh, you know, there's a, a, a grill. Uh, what, in, what pictures? Oh, what, what's on the, uh, the, the, the most prominent one was the picture of Christ. Uh, there's a picture of the Blessed Mother in there. Uh, I'd have to actually go back and look at my own picture of it, at t- the photograph I took. What I think what struck me about it was its simplicity, uh, mm-hmm. not not surprisingly. Um, and, and it just looked like the place that you might have expected, you know, that Teresa would have spent those last uh, hours, literally hours. There was enough room, of course, for the sisters, as we know, to have... Um, um, 
position chairs around her bed, which is the, in fact what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the room itself is very simple. And it's at sort of the end on the backside of this museum. Also in that museum, um, some of the more significant um, uh, artifacts were John's walking stick. John's walking stick is actually was there. Was it plain or was it carved? Very or? simple. No, very simple. Yeah. Was, it, was it big like a pope's? <clears throat> no, uh, I mean, John was only five feet tall. So <laughs> it was literally uh, Francis. I like mean, a cane. Would, yeah, it was a cane. So it, it wasn't probably, a big, tall thing like you, Moses. Thing. No, okay. no. John, of course, carried a lot of infirmities through life, you know, a lot of difficulties in, in his body itself and of course uh, um, it, it's understood that he needed some assistance in in some of the walking he did I want to say something else about Segovia by the way that I I think I failed to mention last week it came to me yesterday when we were meeting in community uh, but most significant I think in that museum was Teresa's heart her actual heart is encased there and what is most significant is you can actually see the incision from the transverberation. Oh, my. Um, you were that no, close. Oh, absolutely. I have a picture of it. And there's no other explanation. You know, um, uh, doctors tell us there's no other explanation for why that that uh, mark is there. It's not consistent with the anatomy of the human heart. And if our audience is not familiar with that, um, it is written about in her one of her books, yeah. uh, the transverberation, and you can right. Google that, St. Teresa of Avila and the transverberation, but it, it's when she had a vision of an, of an angel, uh, you know, taking a, what was it, a sword, a, 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 a fire, a spear, spear yeah. Uh, yeah. with yeah. fire and on the end, piercing her heart, and piercing right. her heart, and then right. when she died, they actually looked for that and yeah. found Evidence. They found evidence. Uh, of it. Yeah. You know, God is a God of surprises, isn't it? He yeah. just keeps confirming uh, the glory that uh, He uh, does through our saints. Yeah. Um, Let me say, because I know we're going to run out before the break, this moment, uh, 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 space in Segovia where John prayed. Um, and this actually goes back to something Ralph Martin wrote about or, or spoke about in his own reflection of St. John of the Cross. The pathway up to this high ground where John used to go to pray had literally two options for uh, ascending. One was a straight up, and one was a switchback. Did I mention that yes, last week? Yes, you did. Okay, I, I thought that was important to make and, sure and that we Mark got out. And Mark went the straight way. I was so yeah, proud yeah, yeah, of yeah, you. Yeah, yes, yeah. that was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I'm going the switchback way in my real prayer yeah. life. But So, you know, there's a real <clears throat> anointing here at Teresa's tomb, and when you're there before her heart, I mean, what are you thinking looking at her heart? Well, I mean, it's an, you know, it's an awe-inspiring thing. Again, as I said before, just being in the presence of these people, uh, of these saints, of these doctors of the church. Major first-class relic of Teresa right yeah, there before yeah, your yeah, eyes. Absolutely. Um, and, and it is, it, it's just very, um, Oh, how do I say this? It, it, it validates everything that we, you know, pursue in Carmel. Um, we know that we are following masters of prayer in our uh, order and in uh, so many ways, masters of prayer for the church. That's what John and Teresa have gifted to the church. Aside from uh, the discalced order, it is the gift of prayer, of contemplative prayer, but also this understanding uh, most especially, I think, in the life of Teresa, as I said at the beginning, that we have an apostolic call. We have a a mission that we have to fulfill in the world. We are not simply called uh, to hovel ourselves away in these uh, quiet spots and to withdraw from the world so that we ourselves can be made holy. There is a reason, and, and, and uh, uh, Teresa tells us, you know, the... the 
the fruit of prayer is our apostolic activity. There's a call, there's a mission. You asked me this last week, and I'll say again. Uh, what impacted me the most from this trip overall was that we, the members of Carmel, are being called to something very special right now, very important. Um, we can't just... Um, you know, sort of live in that uh, contemplative experience. We have to look to the founders of our order and understand how significant was the mission and the the role that they played in making sure that they had an impact in the world. Even 500 years later, we're we're the beneficiaries of that. What's our call in that in that uh, context for us today? Well, we have a lot more questions, Mark, but we have to take a break now. So I invite our audience to please uh, uh, take a break with us and be back in just a few minutes. Thank you.
to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Well, I have a few more questions for Mark. Um, when you arrived at Avila, uh, there's a landmark that uh, is very particular about Teresa. Can you tell us about this landmark? Yeah, as you're uh, being uh, bussed in, and uh, as we were bussed into the city, um, just on the outskirts of the city, down below the city uh, and across the river. There's a river that runs around a good deal of the city. And across the bridge from that, there's a little high ground where there is a, um, oh, uh, um, you know, sort of a platform structure with a cover and pillars, uh, which is an ideal location for taking pictures of Avila, whether during the day or at night. And it is um, understood that that is the location where Teresa and her younger brother were discovered by their uncle uh, outside the city walls, across the river, trying to make their way to the moors where they could be martyred. Now, Teresa was how old? What, seven? Yeah, she was quite young. I I don't recall, but uh, old enough to influence her brother. But uh, (laughs) and this is the way they were going to get to heaven. (laughs) Yes, yes. She read, and she she was very devoted, of course, to um, the the church, even as a young girl. And she understood. She had read that you know. Uh, martyrdom was the quickest way to heaven. So, by golly, being the the you know young and headstrong person she was when and she was her entire life, uh, she made up her mind. She was on her way, and uh, all that it was going to take was to put ourselves at risk in in you know the uh, the camp of the Moors, and then she would be on her way to heaven. So, so, so God permitted her rather than this red martyrdom of giving her life, um, you know, uh, through through blood. He gave her the white martyrdom of. Sacrificing her life for his glory and for our benefit, and aren't, aren't we so blessed? Now she also had an, uh, a devotion to the infant Jesus of Prague. So I'm wondering, you know, how did that come up on this pilgrimage? Well, very prominently, and uh, we talked about uh, just on the break briefly that we should probably have a conversation about the infant of Prague at some point because it is so prominent in the Carmelite uh, order, the Discalced Order, especially. Um, it's a special devotion among all the Carmelites. It is a very special devotion to us. It was very special to Teresa. And you ask about how it was uh, represented. There was not a single uh, church or chapel or Carmel that we visited where the infant of Prague was not prominently displayed. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's no question that for our order, this is a is a very um, a genuine and, and uh, significant devotion. And we really should spend some time talking about it. I'll just say... Uh, that <clears throat> devotion to the infant of Prague, I think, has a great deal to do uh, with each of us individually uh, finding solace in the uh, both the economic and sometimes 
physical and other challenges that we might find ourselves in in our life. This is what the Infinite Prague is really, the devotion is really uh, about, is protecting us from so many of the trials and tribulations uh, that we experience in uh, in our day-to-day life. So uh, it is one we should really have a conversation about sometime. Well, I think we will put that on the schedule. Yeah. And now another devotion, uh, very important, Carmel, is the devotion to St. Joseph. And I know why you were on this pilgrimage. It, it was a pilgrimage, but also a retreat in the sense that you had special talks um, regarding where you were at and what we, what you were seeing. Uh, but you, you had mentioned uh, briefly about a particular conference about St. Joseph. Yeah, Father Jude, who was uh, one of the friars who joined us from Holy Hill, along with Father Daniel Chowning, um, one of the uh, afternoons, he provided us a conference on St. Joseph, and it just reinforced, I think, for those of us who've been in Carmel a long time, uh, we know about Carmel's devotion to St. Joseph, uh, but most especially we should be aware of Teresa's own devotion to St. Joseph. You know, it's, it's I think, well known that uh, Teresa said in every one of the foundations, St. Joseph would be placed at the entrance and the Blessed Mother would be placed uh, in, in the back of the exit, if you will, of the, of the Carmel, and uh, St. Joseph would protect the entry and the, the Blessed Mother would protect the exit. And so um, Teresa had a great uh, confidence in St. Joseph's intercession. Of course, her first foundation was named for St. Joseph. Every single foundation that she established had a, uh, a statue of St. Joseph and prominently displayed. Um, her devotion was based on uh, her constant um, uh, you know, prayerful uh, turning to St. Joseph and his intercession. In fact, she says, uh, if ever, well, first she says, St. Joseph never failed me. If ever he didn't give me exactly what I wanted, he gave me something better. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a great appreciation. And and I think, unfortunately, sometimes it gets lost because uh, rightly so, we have great devotion to the Blessed Mother, but equally so, we have great devotion in Carmel to St. Joseph and to the role that he plays in protecting the order and protecting uh, those of us who are members of the order. And it's it's something we really shouldn't lose. In, in the modern era, of course, uh, St. Joseph is very prominent in certain countries, in Canada, for example, and in Italy and in other locations have... Uh, are, are noted for their devotion to St. Joseph. We've talked about St. Joseph extensively Yes, we on this. had a couple of series on St. Yeah. Joseph. So um, if our listeners want to tune into that, you can go to the archives um, at radiomaria.us or Radio Maria in your country and then look under um, the programs, pick on Carmelite Conversations, and then all the archives programs from the past three years. We're, yeah. we're coming up to our um, beginning our fourth year in February. Wow. So, um, But we did a wonderful series on St. Joseph. I, I know I enjoyed talking with you about him very much and we know he's very pivotal in uh, St. Teresa's life so um, there's a, a special university associated with John of the Cross and I, I'd like you to talk to us about this and, and where this was at and why it was significant yes yeah, Salamanca is the university in, in the same town uh, Salamanca we actually went to one of, to, to Teresa's foundation there as well um, the actual structure we saw, actually we saw the stairwell. If you remember this story, Francis, if anybody would, it would be you. She was pushed down the stairs at one point by the devil. Do you remember this yes. story? We actually walked up that stairwell. Oh, that that's very stairwell. awesome. 
And I have to tell you, it would be a frightening prospect to be pushed down it because it actually uh, gets about halfway down and then it takes a bend. And she mm-hmm. fell the entire length of it. Um, so that very room, the very desk that she used to work at was there. Uh, the very chapel that she um, that she would uh, use that was established with that foundation. It was upstairs in, in one of the, the houses. Uh, that was still there. The courtyard is still there and immaculately maintained. Okay, well, now where are you at? You're not. I'm in Salamanca. You're in yeah. Salamanca. Yep, okay. This is in Salamanca. All right. Um, and then later we went to the university. All right. So later this in was, the day we went to the university. The, the foundation at Salamanca. Correct. Right. And then to the university. Yeah. Now, wasn't this also the story where she sees the child Jesus? I think I, this is at the bottom of the steps. Yeah. Or maybe that's Therese. I might be getting that mixed well, up. That's okay. That's but all right. I think they both have... I would I think, trust your memory on I that. think I had this conversation with one of our other Carmelites about Teresa and Therese both had these stare episodes with, yeah. with Jesus. Hmm. And so, you know, maybe one of our listeners can can look that up and fill us in. But, um, well, Salamanca, of course, is a, is a um, very well-recognized, a prominent university in Spain. I mean, it is, uh, you know, on a par with the Harvard uh, here in the United States. Um, it is a, uh, of course, much older and uh, uh, has a remarkable history. John, after becoming a priest, um, uh, went there to study and uh, continue his studies in philosophy and theology. Um, interestingly, Father Daniel Chowning also went to Salamanca University and pursued, continued his studies. But uh, what's interesting is there is a room that is maintained in the condition that it would have been back in the 1500s. Um, and the desks are very sort of rusted. They're not really desks so much. They're just long uh, um, you know, pieces of timber laid across for seating, and then another long piece of timber uh, laid across as the the place where uh, you know a, a notebook or paper of that time would have been placed. And then in the center of the room, all the way up in the front of the room, there is a little stand where the professor would have stood to lecture. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, very interesting to see a little bit about the educational experience, college experience, university experience at that time. But uh, interestingly, um, we were there as a group and three or four of us had sort of lingered behind. And, uh, you know, we were being told by the uh, uh, folks who were walking us through the university this is understood that john john of the cross would have um would have sat in this very room and uh the guide left and you know a couple of us lingered on and i leaned over the banner which we you know we couldn't pass through the banner but i leaned over and i looked closely at the desk and i looked back to my group and i said oh there's no question john was here and they looked at me with shock (laughs) and i said well there's a jc carved in the wood right here (laughs) And for a moment, they hesitated, and then they realized that they'd been duped. So, uh, <laughs> so nice we, one, Mark. Yeah, I'll pay for that. I'm you sure. see, there are no gloomy Carmelites. <laughs> you're, you're one. Uh, you're one full of pranks. Reminds me of Therese and all her pranks. Yeah. <laughs> well, so um, did the university of its uh, in and of itself? Did they focus on John the Cross in any aspect? They did. They are very proud of the um, the heritage. Of course, th- this is an institution that has graduated many famous people. Uh, in, in Spain and frankly across the world, uh, John Across being one of them, no doubt, 
one of them that uh, that they're very proud of. Uh, but we got to walk through a good deal of both the historical aspect of the, uni- the part of the university as well as the more modern part of the university. Um, the cathedral there, uh, which is not far from the university, actually, is also quite impressive. Uh, the town itself is a university town. I mean, it's a remarkable place. The plaza, the Plaza Mayor, the major plaza, um, is um, uh, somewhat reminiscent of the plazas like it in Italy, actually. It, it has a, in fact, I think the architect was himself an Italian, uh, and so it has a more Italian flavor than some of the other plazas that we were in. Okay. And Father Chowning, who, of course, I, as I say, had attended uh, classes there himself, said that late at night all of the university students will pour in uh, to the plaza, and some of them spending a little, perhaps, uh, too much time there. But uh, uh, it's it's a fascinating place. It's a beautiful place. I certainly, along with Avila and Segovia, if you do have an opportunity to get to Spain, and certainly if you're on a pilgrimage of any sort uh, for Carmel, uh, Salamanca is one of the places that you really ought to go. It's a, it's an impressive city. It's an impressive university. The cathedral there is equally impressive. So, well, and there's one more location that, but we haven't mentioned it at all. Was Madrid, which is where yeah. you ended the pilgrimage. Um, what was that like, and how did that kind of put closure to this wonderful, magnificent traveling in the footsteps of Teresa and John? Yeah, uh, like the other cities in Madrid, of course, there are Carmels um, for both friars and the nuns. We got to visit the Carmel uh, for the friars, and uh, we attended Mass there as well. And that was a wonderful experience. We actually stayed in a hotel in Madrid. This is the one location we didn't stay at a Carmel. Um, Madrid itself is a beautiful city, a remarkable history. Again, if you go, you mentioned about the readings, and this was some of the reading I did sort of outside of my Carmelite studies, just to know a little bit more about the history of Madrid, some of the architecture of some of the buildings and uh, some of the military and political history of the city, uh, how it was itself a walled city, although the wall is, for all intents and purposes, gone now. Um, We went to the Prado, which is the world-famous museum in Ah. Madrid, and we spent a good deal of time there. That was really quite uh, a rewarding experience. And um, we got to see uh, both the, you know, sort of modern as well as the ancient, which is very well blended together in the city of Madrid. What's um, interesting, what I took away from Madrid is uh, we got there early in the evening. We went out that evening to grab dinner and so forth. And literally on the same uh, busy street uh, at night, uh, you will find uh, the active uh, practice of prostitution. It's oh, legal, of course, in uh-huh. Madrid. And then the very next morning, on that same street, you'll see nuns walking up and down the street, fully dressed in their habits. So for me, as an American, um, it was a m- remarkable contrast of darkness and light, living in the same, you know, um, uh, space, if you will. And, uh, you know, it sort of struck me that this is much like our walk in Carmel. We talked about a little bit the need to understand the history of the order, the need to understand the uh, the challenges that were faced, the interaction with the world blended with our contemplative experience. And you can express that as the combination of darkness and light. In the city of Madrid, that's prominently so. It is a very modern city. Uh, it has all of the beauty and the advantages of a modern city, but then it has all of the darkness and the, the sort of underlying um, challenges, I guess is a, a polite way of saying it, that are represented in any city. And, you know, there's the displaced element of society in Spain. Spain has a, uh, uh, you know, a remarkable a challenge right now. Economically, there's some 24, 
three or four percent of the population that's out of work. Um, so you'll find folks, uh, you know, doing anything they can to try to uh, secure their um, uh, economic stability, whether it's selling illegal goods out on the street, which we saw, or, um, you know, the practice uh, I mentioned um, in the evening. Uh, It's a difficult place, and it is a place like so much of the world uh, that is desperately in need of a sign of hope. And uh, back to our our discussion about what struck me, um, we as Carmelites are witnesses to that hope, if I can steal the title of the book, witnesses to hope of the presence of God in the world. And that's what we're called to be, is witnesses to that hope and and our call to evangelization. And it doesn't mean that we need to stand on street corners and, and, uh, you know, bellow elements of the scripture. We are witnesses to the um, existence of God in the world by our very presence in the world, by our responding to needs, by our uh, witnessing when we can and certainly when we're asked to, uh, but even just by the way that we live our lives. You know, so many of us have limitations on what we can do actively within the church and within society. We may, um, you know, ourselves be bound by, uh, you know, the legal system and, and uh uh, we may be spending time in prison or whatever the case might be. I know active Carmelites who live in prison, uh, but nonetheless, they have a ministry. They're involved in changing the world in the way that God has called them to do that. And if there's one thing that I, I take away from my experience of having traveled these difficult roads to the foundation of our order, it is that our mother... Uh, Teresa and our father, St. John of the Cross, changed the world yes. such that 500 years later, we're still drawing fruit from their efforts. Absolutely. And we now are the ones, their children, responsible for affecting our world. And they're looking at us, and I think they're watching, and they're waiting to see what we're going to do. And they're interceding for us, without yeah. a doubt about that. Yeah. So... Being prophets of hope, I think that is so important uh, because in this day and age, uh, we hear so many stories about lives who that are shattered. And I know with Veterans Day today, we have a lot of veterans that have significant uh, uh, stories and journeys that are heartbreaking in many ways. And so uh, how to bring hope to them. Yeah, I wanted to relate just quickly the experience that I shared um, yesterday in community about this young man that we all met. The pilgrims were on an airplane back uh, to Chicago from Madrid, and we met a young man uh, whose name I, I'd rather not share, but just briefly share some of the uh, the details of the encounter. Uh, he's a Afghan a veteran. Uh, he would actually be returning to Afghanistan, um, uh, I believe, this month. Uh, I, I have to get back in touch with him. I think he leaves this month. But <clears throat> he um, was uh, somebody who sought out the Catholic faith as a young 20-some-odd-year-old, uh, was invited to go to a church uh, by a friend of his, and later uh, uh, asked the priest if he could enter uh, uh, catechesis and uh, be baptized and, and ultimately brought into the church, which he was. And then uh, his experience in Afghanistan, for different reasons, caused him uh, not so much to lose his faith as to leave his faith behind. He said that for him, he couldn't reconcile his Christian faith with what it was he'd been commissioned to do. And uh, for him, it was, uh, it was a very difficult and a very painful experience. Uh, he is somebody who's engaged directly in combat. He's on the front lines. He's, uh, you know, directly involved in the hostilities that uh, are resulting in deaths on both sides. Um, and that's a difficult intellectual 
challenge for a young person who may not have been given uh, sort of the insight and the guidance and the counsel uh, necessary to allow him to reconcile how, in fact, his mission is consistent still with his Christian walk. Well, and, you know, I have to add today I heard a a person speak about the veterans having been a veteran, and um, she said that veterans uh, are very keen about knowing that they go out and they do this work, but they're very keen that their lives are in God's hands. Yeah. So there is a component of true surrender, never knowing if they're going to come back from this mission or not. So really that surrender and abandonment into God's hands and doing what you, you think is the right thing to do. So, uh, you know, our hats off to our veterans because, you know, that, that is deep faith. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, a unfortunate consequence of the struggles that um, you know, someone like this young man faces, and that is what we already know is a remarkable increase in the incidences of suicide uh, and, among our veteran community. And, and, and plus, throughout the world, I, I think we're seeing an increase of that, uh, just because the economics yeah. and, and just the evil of the world seems to be so pungent. Yeah. And, you know, so I keep thinking, okay, Lord, when are you going to act? And, of course, he is acting, um, you know, and and. He's calling us also to participate in his action of being light and hope. So how important it is for us to bring hope to all these people yeah. and to keep them in our prayers. Yeah, I, I would really like to, uh, you know, present to call out a challenge to our Carmelite members uh, today on this Veterans Day um, to adopt our veteran community. You know, if you know somebody personally or if you are uh, familiar with a facility that may be near you, and it doesn't have to just be today, I, I pray that it will be uh, something uh, longer lasting, but um, I, I think it's uh, worth uh, defining something like Carmelites for Veterans, you know, where we would come together and lift up our veteran community. The challenges they face today in the midst of all of the chaos of our economic situation, the political debate that rages in our in our capital, this issue around health care. Just their all physical of that living, them. because so many of them are coming back without limbs, or right. paralyzed or whatever. Right. And we now begin to understand a little bit the effects of uh, post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome syndrome on these uh, individuals and these issues that they can't oftentimes reconcile in their own mind. There's a, a story today that, that I downloaded uh, as part of the program. Again, I won't uh, share the individual's name, but this is a physician, somebody who was in the, uh, uh, the uh, battle area as a physician, and she herself came back with PTSD and struggled um, um, for quite some time with thoughts of suicide. In fact, uh, um, you know, desired, actually. To, to, to just end it all. You hear these stories. I've heard them throughout the day on the radio uh, as we talk about now because it is Veterans Day. The challenges our veterans are facing, in many ways, they seem insurmountable. Uh, they seem as though there is no hope. Uh, but the fact of the matter is there is hope in the existence of a living God. Our God is in the world. He's active. We need to reach out uh, to this community called our, our, our veterans. And again, whether it's personal, whether it's a conversation, whether we take someone to lunch, whether we go work at a veteran facility, these are the more active ways of doing it. But if you are uh, homebound, if you just don't have a time in your schedule, if you're not near a veteran facility and there's no uh, practical way for you to engage in a more material uh, form of support, I 
beg you to start praying for our veteran community. We as Carmelites across the world need to lift up this community of people who not only have made such a significant commitment uh, in support of freedom, but have also paid the highest price, and that is, in many cases, uh, find themselves now very in very desperate circumstances and struggling to hold on to hope. Yeah, I think there's like 40% of them that are on, uh, you know, getting food stamps even. Some form of, uh, of support of beyond their veteran yeah, um, exactly. uh, support, which they're but certainly you know, entitled to. I have to mention a, a veteran that is a beacon of hope. His name is Captain Guy Gruder, and he has a website, so you can just Google Captain Guy Gruder. He, he's based in Ohio. He was a um, prisoner of war in Vietnam for five years and uh, underwent the most horrendous situation, and yet uh, to hear him speak about his faith in God and and how he struggled to grow in his faith in those horrendous situations and yet how much it blossomed and you know how it carried him through um, I think it's so important so I know some of his uh, interviews are, are being uh, broadcast on some other radio stations uh, but he has a website and there's much he can speak to about this virtue of hope and and faith in God uh, and surviving uh, all of that so uh, I, maybe someday we can get him to speak on our Carmelite conversations because that you know John of the cross was a beacon of hope. Right. And and so I think we really do need to focus on hope because uh, uh, of the times that we're in. Yeah, and you know, if we do have veterans listening, and I hope we do this evening, have some veterans listening to us, uh, John of the Cross would be perhaps uh, a, a good individual to turn to. You know, John experienced his prison experience, if you will, a uh, very difficult trying time, almost led to his death. Nine and months. So Yeah, nine months. And, and many of our veterans, I would argue, are living in their own prison right now. It is a prison where hope has been diminished. The light of hope has been diminished. It's not out yet. Um, I, I, I would argue that, uh, you know, these in, uh, almost unbelievable rates of suicide, I don't even want to read the number because I struggle, even though it was released by the Veterans Affairs, I struggle with these numbers. Uh, but, but we know that suicide is really the snuffing out of hope. It is really the last uh, sort of... Uh, you know, closure on the virtue of hope. And we've got to hold on to hope. Yes. We as Carmelites are witness to hope. And I pray that our veteran community might turn to Carmel, if not at least to a, a Christian message that says there is hope, despite how dark it might be for you, there is hope. And for our Carmelites, I would hope that today would be the day that our Lord would hear this resounding echo of prayers uh, uh, brought up uh, in support of our veteran community. You know, there are three, uh, uh, two actually principal populations that we as Carmelites pray for. The souls in purgatory, and this is the month of November, we should certainly be doing that. And for priests, yes. we are commissioned to pray for these communities. I would like to add veterans to that list. I would hope that we as Carmelites would take on the challenge of supporting this community because they are in such desperate need of our prayers. Well, Mark, we're we're out of time, and um, I just want to thank you again for uh, sharing so much of this uh, pilgrimage that you went on. It's been very fruitful. I uh, will have to go back and listen to it again because uh, I uh, there's just so much here, and I know it's fruitful for people to learn how to go on pilgrimage. And I think you've addressed that well. So thank you so much for sharing with that. And and I know you have a closing prayer for us today. So we'll, well I do, of course. This week we'll uh, celebrate, on the 15th, we'll celebrate all Carmelite souls, 
for the order. And I would like to add, uh, as I said a moment ago, to this prayer, our veterans, uh, Lord, you are the glory of those who serve you. Look lovingly on our departed brothers and sisters united in following Christ and his mother by the waters of baptism and the bonds of Carmel. In your mercy, grant them everlasting sight of you, their creator and redeemer. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us on Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. We look forward to being back with you again next week. And Francis and I will look forward to an opportunity to talk about uh, the infant of Prague at some point. Uh, and, of course, picking up on the, uh, the great feast days that we'll enjoy this week. Until then, God bless. Listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.